Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome back to The Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison. If, like me, you keep an eye on the science and technology columns, you'll have been on tenterhooks for the launch of the first new moonshot program in over 50 years. The uncrewed Artemis 1 rocket was supposed to test a new space launch system before the end of August, but first the regular weather and then Hurricane Ian got in the way. It's now supposed to go up towards the end of November. Artemis 1 will herald a new era of space exploration where the crewed Artemis 2 rocket will put the first woman and the first person of colour on the moon. This raises questions of why we commit billions of investments on space exploration and tourism, plus all that carbon, when we could be concentrating on the climate crisis on Earth. But instead of cutting back on space research during a world economic crisis and the climate disaster, should we in fact double down on it? Can research in space solve problems here on Earth? Here to explain it all to me is a woman with the job I always wanted, an actual space journalist. Teresa Pulterova is from Prague in the Czech Republic. She has a master's in science from the International Space University in France. I didn't even know there was an International Space University. And she's now based in London where she reports for space.com. Hello, Teresa. How are you? Hello, and thank you for having me. Thanks for coming in. I mean, let, let's start with that carbon question first. There was a paper published in March from France's IRAP Astrophysics Laboratory, and it estimated that greenhouse gas emissions from all space research had a carbon footprint of around 20 million metric tonnes, which is about equal to countries like Estonia, Croatia or Bulgaria. For comparison, commercial aviation in it's about 900 million metric tonnes. But 20 million is still a lot. Can we afford the carbon output of space research? So I think there are two elements to this. One mm -hmm. is, uh, I think what this paper focused on was really carbon footprint of like uh, astronomical observatories and ah. running all the science facilities. And also, let's say astronomers, they travel a lot, you know, to conferences, to those various like places like Chile, Hawaii, where all these like fancy telescopes are. And uh, this is a really interesting question. And this is something that can be solved actually I don't want to say easily, but there's already a lot of work going into this and the astronomy community, from what I had the chance to see, is very committed to solving yeah. this because they they are very passionate about, uh, you know, the, the environment. They understand the science, so they know that this is serious. And there is a lot of, uh, you know, sort of like effort to, let's say, the big observatories, which have this big carbon footprint to switch them to, you know, like renewable resources, make them more sustainable. There's been also a lot of... Um, let's say, movement towards, like, remote conferencing. I think mm -hmm. they all got inspired through COVID. Like, they don't need to travel all the time. So, you know, the carbon footprint of an astronomer is, on average, much higher than yeah. that of a normal person. So they, they are trying to get this down. So that's... That's that's the, that's earthbound. But what about actually putting stuff into space? So that's the other, other aspect, and that's uh, the carbon footprint of uh, rocket launches. Mm. So I would say that the carbon footprint of, of rocket launches is not what worries scientists too much, because all rockets that are launched within a year 
today mm. uh, emit about 1% of the carbon that is emitted by aviation and aviation only emits about 2.5% of mm. the global kind of carbon emission. So it's a very small percentage. So the scientists that I had the chance to speak today said we are not worried that much about the carbon footprint of these launches, but there are other aspects of these emissions that they are worried about. Well, I mean, you, you, you told me a little bit of some of those problems with aluminium oxide for propellants and things. So uh, the thing is, there are different kind of chemical compounds that are present in uh, the exhaust from mm. various types of uh, rockets. And there are two elements. One is soot, which is present in the exhaust of uh, rockets that uh, burn essentially a form of kerosene, the aviation fuel. And soot gets, essentially the rocket flies through the atmosphere and it emits soot. And the higher it goes, the soot sort of like doesn't doesn't have a way to go yeah, back there's down. there's no effort to fall to. It yeah. just stays in the it atmosphere. It stays there forever and it mm. keeps accumulating there. And mm. soot, uh, soot is black. Yes. So it absorbs uh, radiation. And it can, at some point, if a lot of a lot of it accumulates there, it will heat up the higher layers of the atmosphere, like the stratosphere, the mesosphere. And there are concerns, the scientists that study it, that it, this may kind of create a new type of climate change that we don't understand uh, mm-hmm. yet. And the same as you mentioned, the uh, aluminum oxide, that's, that's the same thing. So this is present in solid rocket boosters. So that's kind of strap-on boosters. Some some of the rockets, they, they're not just like the major, the central yeah. rocket. They have these kind of side kind of things. These are called so- solid rocket boosters and they burn something that contains aluminum and then when it burns, it creates aluminum oxide. And there are two things about this. So one is that it destroys ozone. So that actually was proven. They studied it after space shuttle launches, that after every space shuttle launch, there were like these kind of local micro ozone holes wow. where the rocket sort of flew through. But they were small, so it kind of mixes up again and it's fine but it's already a concern that if uh, the amount of rocket flights uh, keeps growing the way they expect it to grow then yes this could become a problem for the ozone yeah. layer and again the aluminum oxide also does a similar thing to the soot which i mentioned previously that it yeah. accumulates and then it can change kind of how the upper layers of the atmosphere absorb heat and it can change all sorts of things, how they work in the atmosphere, yeah. and that could be quite bad. So basically, time to build the space elevator where we all just go up like on a gigantic ramp. Yeah, or there are rockets that are cleaner. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is uh, some rockets use uh, liquid oxygen, liquid hydrogen. This is mostly the smaller rockets. So, mm-hmm. for example, Blue Origin, which is one of the space tourism companies, they use liquid oxygen, liquid hydrogen, and that appears to be kind of fine. It only emits water vapors, so there are not too many yeah. concerns about it. And then liquid methane also seems to be quite good. So satellite imagery, while we're still talking about the climate, satellite imagery is obviously massively important for gauging climate change, combating it. Is there actual research happening within the space sector about mitigating climate change? There are plenty kind of interesting elements to this. So Mm. I would first say we are talking about emissions, but satellites are now already used to actually monitor sources of emissions. And uh, currently, it's uh, they monitor sources of methane. Mm-hmm. And that's really interesting because uh, at the Glasgow Climate Change Conference, which took place, I think it was October, November last year, there was this kind of pledge when the global leaders said, we want to reduce methane emissions because uh, methane is 80 times more potent than carbon dioxide in warming the climate. Mm. So there is much less of it, but it's very potent. And most of these emissions, they are believed to be avoidable. So most of these emissions come from, uh, let's say, oil and gas production. 
And a lot of it is essentially negligence on the side of the people who operate those mm-hmm. uh, facilities. When you're kind of mining natural gas, you should be burning the stuff that you don't use further. But sometimes they're just like venting it out. Right. And uh, the amount of these emissions that this creates is quite huge. And they can see it with those satellites from space. Mm-hmm. So they can say, oh, you in kind of... Kazakhstan or Russia or whatever, you, this person, this particular facility, you are venting methane and do something about it. And there is a new mission in development now, which will be able to monitor man-made sources of uh, carbon dioxide, which is more difficult because there is a lot of carbon dioxide naturally in the atmosphere. So there is a very small difference that they need to be able to measure. But right now, countries are self-reporting emissions. Mm. So there is no no one can tell you, you are the person responsible for it. So this is something that it's very soon going to happen. And it, it can make a big difference in like enforcing the compliance with, with, yeah. uh, with um, how things are going. So that's one aspect. And another one, I think you were um, kind of uh, wanting to talk about uh, maybe how space technology can like help us to go sustainable. Yeah. So uh, there is some interesting stuff going on, which is, I think it's still in developmental stages kind of concepts. And that's uh, space-based solar power. Mm -hmm. And the UK has some uh, kind of projects in this area, the US, Japan, the European Space Agency. And the idea is that you would have these kind of giant uh, orbiting solar power plants. And you have no clouds in space. Yes. You have 24-hour perfect sunshine. So the efficiency is really amazing. And then you beam this electricity that you generate in uh, space in the form, I think it's microwave energy. You beam it down and there are some antennas somewhere in the ocean that sort of like capture it and convert it to the direct current or, or whatever we need. And it hasn't been done yet, but there is a kind of project in the UK and they think that if they have the funding, they could have it by 2035. Right. And it's all the big companies like Rolls-Royce kind of supporting that. So it's not like a fantasy. It's something that actually could happen. Being if worked they on right now. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's talk more about that kind of research. I mean, we did a little bit of a chat before this podcast. And you told me about a huge spread of things that are happening research potential ambitions to the moon and Mars, you know, the issues of space weather and space debris. But tell us, what for you are the key research and technology opportunities right now in the kind of near-Earth orbit? Well, I think there is some interesting development in terms of, let's say, the move of commercial companies into the low-Earth orbit mm. and the space agencies like NASA kind of moving further away, like to the moon. And the idea is that in 2030, NASA will sort of like quit the International Space Station and private companies will set up various sorts of like mm-hmm. research laboratories there. And it's quite interesting for material research. So they can, it's because you don't have gravity, then things sort of like mix up differently and the yeah. vacuum sort of, it makes it easier to develop like new materials, like new alloys. There is, uh, for example, which I find really interesting, and that's something that especially China uh, is quite good at. They fly seeds, like plant seeds into space. And what happens, they mutate, and then they can develop like new crop varieties, uh, which can be more resistant to, you know, drought and have better yields and all sorts of things. So... There's plenty of stuff, all sorts of science, yeah. health science. Well, one of the most fascinating things that a lot of people have, will have noticed is Elon Musk's Starlink set of communication satellites. I think SpaceX put 52 new ones up last week. This is the thing that delivers internet communications over areas that are maybe not networked or maybe don't have infrastructure. And it's been particularly important for Ukraine, hasn't it? Yeah, that definitely has been important for Ukraine. And uh, the whole kind of idea 
came. Actually, SpaceX wasn't the first company who started uh, developing this. Originally, mm. it was already in the 1990s. There were some companies at Microsoft that wanted to do this. At the time, the technology wasn't there yet. Then there was OneWeb, who was the first company who proposed it. But SpaceX is winning this contest right now. The idea is uh, there's this thing called the digital divide. So there are still about 3 billion people in the world who don't have proper internet access. Mm-hmm. And there are areas in the world where it is difficult to play, you know, fiber optic cables because it's expensive. If you have some rural areas that are like not very yeah. densely populated, it just, uh, you know, the, the economics is not there. So for these people, this this is like a huge, huge difference. But I would say styling is a very controversial project for many people because they they are doing it a bit, I would say, megalomaniacal. So I mentioned OneWeb. OneWeb had a plan to put up like 700 satellites Mm. and SpaceX is now aiming for 12,000 in the first stage and then 40,000 later on. And this is causing a lot of concerns to very many people. First, because of like space debris, these satellites will be regularly deorbited. So every five years, some of them fail and there is already too much clutter in Earth's orbit. And Mm. this is already like the fact that operators now have to spend a lot of time just avoiding other people's stuff, yes. whether it being SpaceX's stuff or, or other people's stuff. They just constantly have to kind of make sure that they're not about to crash into each other. So that's one thing. The other thing uh, goes back to the environmental issues, because as all these satellites will be burning in the upper atmosphere, mm. they're made of aluminum, they create aluminum oxide, and it just adds to these kind of climate change concerns that these scientists have, that we're polluting these upper layers of atmosphere and it's going to happen. And I would mention the third thing, and that's astronomers are not big fans of SpaceX because the satellites, they're very low, so they actually are quite visible. They reflect sunlight and uh, astronomers, they just see those streaks in their images. So it's... uh, So they get in the way. Yeah, they're essentially now saying that light pollution from satellites is now getting almost as bad as kind of light pollution that we see from like urban lighting. And with like urban lighting, you can build your observatory in like Chile or like Australian, you know, somewhere the countryside wherever and uh, you don't have light pollution but with these satellites you can't really avoid them so it's a bit of a headache for people you mentioned um agricultural developments in microgravity what about medical research i read i mean this is just me browsing i saw scientists at cedars sinai medical in los angeles are trying to grow stem cells specific types of stem cells on the iss because the microgravity enables them to develop differently are you aware of other medical research that's happening yeah there are various things Uh, they are for example trying to grow like organs there because you don't have the gravity there. So like micro, it's just tiny everything right now. But Kidneys from space. Yeah, something like that. But what I find really interesting is like the uh, research into like aging because essentially astronauts in space, they age very fast. They, you, because you don't have gravity, you lose bone, Yes. you lose muscle. I don't know the numbers just from the top of my head, but they age like yeah. years. You end up like the belters on the expanse. Tall, thin, and your bones break easily. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. So then there are there's this research into like how to mitigate it, and that then can feed into sort of like let's say protocols that could help people yeah. on Earth who are suffering from osteoporosis and just understand what's going on and try to reverse it perhaps. Because with the astronauts, they usually they have very sophisticated kind of like fitness regimes, and most of it is reversible in their case. Let's talk about that Artemis mission to the moon. Um, the major question that people would ask on this is, why are we going to the moon? We can barely afford to run planet Earth. Why are we going to the moon now? 
Uh, why are we going to the moon now? I think this is something that's been sort of in the making for quite a while. And now it's reached the stage when we are going. Uh, obviously, I do understand the question like we uh, have so many problems on Earth. Should we be investing into this? I think that's kind of a political question. Hmm. Uh, and I think the people who run these things and even the politicians would always want to have these kind of big flagship projects. I mean, space race was a political thing in the you know 60s. So in a way, sort of, it's sort of like we have China now flexing their space muscles. So uh, I think the West just doesn't want to and can't afford to stay behind. So it's more of a political thing. But mm. I do understand the, let's say, the argument, like, should we be investing somewhere else? But um, what's actually on the moon? that we? Because there's water there, which can be used as a propellant. So yes? the point of going to the moon is not necessarily to bring anything back at this stage, as far as I know, but to set actually have like permanent human presence there. And it's quite interesting uh, politically again, because so NASA is leading this Artemis program with partners like Canada, Japan and European Space Agency. But there is also China and Russia who want to set up their own Uh base on the moon. And you know, will we have a war over (laughs) who's going to control moon in 10, 20 years from now? It's actually... There are treaties that should prevent that. So, so establishing a habitat there, but as far as I'm aware, the only kind of natural resource is water and the kind of lunar regolith, the soil that you can build yeah. stuff out of. But what what are we attempt? What, what are you expecting to achieve on the moon apart from kind of staking out a particular political claim? So, uh, I think the idea is that there will be like a permanent. Uh, it will be like a new continent. Right. The, the similar way that humans, you know, Europeans colonized America. So uh, the I think the big idea is that we will colonize moon and have permanent human presence there. And uh, we will use moon as a springboard to go to Mars and other places. Because uh, always when you're launching a, ro- a rocket, the most difficult thing is to get from the surface of oh. Earth through the first, you know, tens of kilometers of the atmosphere. So when you do it from the moon, which is smaller, has lower gravity and doesn't have atmosphere, you don't need that much propellant. You can have a smaller spacecraft and you can, the idea is it's called like in-situ resource utilization. So you will be building stuff already on the moon from the stuff that is there because there are some metals in the in the regolith that you can learn how to extract. You can have 3D printers there that then will like... Uh, manufacture everything, you need use it correctly. There is a water, so you can split water into hydrogen and oxygen and have have uh, essentially a rocket fuel. So, yeah, that is kind of the idea of what's, yeah. what's behind that. Now, when we spoke before this podcast, you said one of the things you were concerned about was space weather. Yes. Tell us what space weather is and why we should worry about it. Space weather, that's actually really interesting. So the sun has this 11-year cycle of activity and then there are these sunspots and then it's sort of like you have solar flares and coronal mass ejections so there are like these bursts. A a coronal mass ejection, what is that? So it's kind of a burst of plasma so it's charged particles from the sun essentially from the subsurface of the sun. The sun shoots these particles kind of into space and when this coronal mass ejection is directed at earth then it hits us and depending on the orientation of the magnetic field, it can sort of like mess up the Earth's magnetic field. And then it creates several things. One is uh, aurora. So that's uh-huh. polar lights. That's beautiful. How urgently do we need asteroid spotters to prevent the kind of Bruce Willis, Armageddon, Tunguska scenario? Okay, so I don't want to scare anybody. NASA and, and the space agencies, they know 
probably about all of those big enough to destroy the whole planet. And there is none of them that would be coming anytime soon. But, but. the smaller they get, <laughs> uh, the more difficult they are to spot. Mm-hmm. And it is correct to say that there could be an asteroid coming tomorrow that will be 50 meters in diameter. And if it's coming from the direction of the sun, they wouldn't be able to see it. And it could uh, smash uh, into the Earth tomorrow and nobody would know. And an asteroid 50 meters in diameter would cause damage equivalent to the Hiroshima nuclear bomb. So depending how lucky we are or where it hits, we're in London, so if such an asteroid, it would probably explode uh, in, in the atmosphere. If it was to explode above London, then I was told the whole kind of within the circular motorway, the area within the circular motorway. Everywhere within the M25 yeah. would go. Would go. Some yeah. parts of the country would be happy about that. I wouldn't. Cause I wouldn't. It's, it's, it's where I live. I wouldn't yeah, want that to happen no, at all. I wouldn't. <laughs> so what happens if we actually, if we are able to spot one of these major destruction asteroids not coming from the sun where we can see it? What do we do? I mean, do we get Bruce Willis? What do we do? So that's a very interesting question. And there's this mission called DART, which right now is on the way to an asteroid called Didymos. And it will smash into this Didymos asteroid, I think, in September, October, not that far away from from now. And the whole purpose of this mission is to test whether you can deflect it. So these are essentially two asteroids orbiting each other, and they want to smash into the smaller one and see whether they can change its orbit around the bigger one. And the idea is that if in the future we have an asteroid heading towards Earth, we can send such a spacecraft to smash uh, into it and change its trajectory so that it doesn't hit us. Uh, The question is, for this, we would need to know some time in advance, so it probably would work only for the bigger ones. If it was something small, our best chances are, I think they want to put some new telescopes into space to look for those that are difficult to spot. And then I would assume it might just be evacuation if we are lucky. (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, this has been absolutely fascinating. I mean, we've talked about space research and, and, you know, the wilder reaches of it. But, I mean, as you were saying, you're personally, you know, very keen on it just on a philosophical basis, as expansion of knowledge, you know, pushing back the frontiers as, as a good in their own right. How do you sell that to somebody who is immediately worried about widespread poverty and the failure to deal with climate change here on Earth. What's the what's the key argument that you would put to them? So for me, I would say that so many people can go and have great careers in space. And in this country, there is this shortage of technical skills. And I think every kid that uh, gets inspired by this and they decide to go into, you know, they, they just may, may decide at 10 years old that they want to become astronaut. And they start pursuing this education because to become an astronaut, you need a lot of qualifications. And they just put this passion into this. And at the end of the day, they might not become astronauts, but they, they just can go into all sorts of technical jobs. They can have very rewarding careers and they can solve the problems that we have here. So I think I do think that these things can inspire people to put their energies into something that make that will make not only their lives kind of more exciting and more interesting because there are opportunities for so many people. I, I feel that this field is quite fair in the sense that like, you know, I'm not a scientist, but I was born behind the Iron Curtain. I'm an Eastern European kid. And thanks to like space and tech, I I have a very interesting international sort of career, much more interesting than I thought when I was growing up in the 1990s in the post-communist kind of dull Czechoslovakia, where I thought that my world forever will be this kind of tiny little Eastern European pond. So I think you can be like a working class kid from somewhere like north of England and you just pour your 
passion into it and you can achieve great things. You can. I believe that you can, that, that it's quite actually a democratic uh, environment for people to have better lives, better careers, exciting, learn exciting things, keep learning and bring back to the world because you are actually developing technologies that are making our lives better. Like our world, the way it is, like that's, that's just based on science and technology. Like if you look 150 years ago, what did we have? Mm, there you go. Space is the place. Teresa, thank you so much for joining me in the bunker. Thank you. It was it's great been, to be here. It's been really interesting and terrifying in equal measure. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe and give us a five-star rating on Apple. If you really, really liked it, you can support The Bunker and help it to grow by backing us on Patreon for early ad-free episodes and much more. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. Sadly, we can't be the first podcast in space. The ISS mission specialist Steve Robinson beat us to it in 2005, and his podcast is still online somewhere. But with your help, perhaps there will be one day a bunker on the moon. This is Andrew Harrison signing off for All Mankind. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Andrew Harrison. The producers were Jacob Archbold, Jelena Sofronievich and Alex Rees, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>